in-depth journalism is more important than ever in a complicated, chaotic time. That's why we listen to NPR's Throughline. This is a podcast that appeals to us on so many levels. As history buffs, we love their historical contextualization of important ongoing issues. As storytellers, we love the engaging way they approach and often humanize complicated tales. As news consumers who want to stay informed, we love the way they give the story behind the big stories of the day. We try to take a similar approach on the murder sheet, and we feel confident that our listeners would enjoy giving NPR's Throughline a try. We've been going through their entire backlog recently, listening to them as we drive to source meetings. One favorite of mine was their episode about Andrew Johnson's impeachment. Throughline's coverage didn't disappoint, delving in depth into one of history's worst U.S. presidents. They also did an episode which is rather pertinent to our work, and that was the one they did about the proliferation of conspiracy theories and how they've always been part of America's DNA. That's something I think about quite a lot, given the creep of misinformation and manipulation in online true crime spaces. NPR's Throughline is a source we trust. They're all about nuance and depth and unpacking the messiness behind outwardly simple stories. Go back in time. Learn something new. Emerge more knowledgeable about today's headlines. Listen now to Throughline from NPR, wherever you get your podcasts. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite gripping investigations ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free true crime. That's amazon.com slash ad-free true crime to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Content warning. This episode contains discussion of murder. Sometimes it seems that the way a person behaves just doesn't change all that much from situation to situation. That can apply in ways good or bad. If, for instance, a person took shortcuts and the easy way out in high school, there's a great chance that she would do the same once she gets a job. Or if a person finds he makes people laugh by acting a certain way, or gets compliments when dressing a certain way, then you can bet he will repeat those behaviors as well. What all of that boils down to is that if you want to get an idea of how a person might behave in the future, it's often worth taking an extended look at how they acted in similar circumstances in the past. How does this apply in the Delphi case, the 2017 murders of Liberty German and Abigail Williams? Well, at this point, there was quite a bit of speculation about what the defense for Richard Allen might look like and what tactics might be employed by his attorneys. Brad Rosie and Andrew J. Baldwin. To get a bit of insight into that, and to illustrate a scenario some Delphi observers have predicted might happen in the Allen case, we decided to take a look at an ongoing case where Andrew Baldwin represents a man facing multiple murder charges. A case where the defense was able to surprise and outrage the public. 
My name is Anya Kane. I'm a journalist. And I'm Kevin Greenlee. I'm an attorney. We first connected while looking into the Burger Chef murders, an Indiana cold case. Together, we built a spreadsheet documenting hundreds of cases of restaurant-related homicides. That original spreadsheet gave way to our podcast, The Murder Sheet. Now we maintain that same research-centric, investigative approach as we look into all sorts of homicides, including unsolved cases, historical crimes, and, of course, restaurant murders. We don't just chat about the headlines. Our podcast is a platform for our journalism. The Murder Sheet focuses on investigative reporting, thoughtful analysis, thorough research, and in-depth interviews. We're the Murder Sheet. And this is the Delphi Murders, Andrew Baldwin and the defense of Caden Smith. Of course, before we talk about the defense of Caden Smith, we need to talk about the crime itself and how police investigated it. That story begins in the early evening hours of October 12, 2021. An off-duty Indianapolis police officer named Nicholas Stewart was making the rounds near a construction site where he was doing security work. The site was in a field near a busy highway on the south side of the city. Stewart spotted something he very much did not expect to see. On a path leading away from the site, Stewart saw two bodies. Stewart must have been tempted to go and take a closer look at what he now knew was a crime scene. But he kept his distance and immediately called the police. When the on-duty officers arrived, they carefully approached the bodies. They saw that they were two young men. In fact, they would later be identified as Michael James Jr., 22, and Joseph Thomas, who was just 18 years old. Near the dead men were several spent casings. While searching for evidence, police ventured into an area of tall grass a short distance away. There, they discovered another body, another dead young man. He was later identified as Abdullah Mubarak, who was 17 years old. There were casings around his body as well. All of the young men had been shot multiple times. In fact, about 50 9mm shell casings would be recovered from the crime scene. As Indianapolis residents, we watched the developments in this case closely. The fact that the bodies of three young men were found in an area near a major highway was quite scary and upsetting. We heard a lot of speculation online that a serial killer could be at work. And at first, there seemed to be a frustrating lack of information about what was going on and what had happened to the three victims. Meanwhile, 
the police investigation began in earnest. Detectives started going around and talking with people who knew the dead men, and they began hearing pretty similar stories. Michael James's girlfriend, for instance, revealed that James told her he planned to arrange a meeting with someone named Caden in order to get Glock switches from him. She went on to explain that this Caden person was young, white, and lived with his grandmother. Just as a quick note, the three victims in this case were black. The Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, Firearms, and Explosives, or the ATF, defines a Glock switch as a relatively simple, albeit illegal, device that allows a conventional semi-automatic Glock pistol to function as a fully automatic firearm. The fact that Caden apparently had a supply of these gave police a bit of an indication about what sort of a person Caden might be. A friend of Michael James told police a bit more about Caden, going so far as to provide the address of Caden's grandmother. Using this information, police were able to identify Caden as 16-year-old Caden Smith. The investigators also spoke with Joseph Thomas's mother. She remembered that the last time she saw her son alive was on Sunday night, about 48 hours before police discovered his body. Thomas was over at her apartment, and he left a little before 7 p.m. As he left his mother for the final time, he said, I'm going to meet with Caden and take care of something. Thomas told a similar story to a friend of his. Sometime on that Sunday afternoon or evening, Thomas told his friend that he was going to see Caden and would return later. Now, what is especially interesting is that while talking to his friend, Thomas actually added a detail he had not shared with his mother. When he saw Caden, Thomas told his friend, he intended to ask him about a gun. Police showed this friend a picture of Caden Smith, and their friend confirmed that this was indeed the Caden that Thomas planned to meet. So at this point, police had information indicating that two of the three dead men had plans to meet with Caden Smith shortly before their deaths and that those meetings would involve a discussion about guns. They also had information tying Smith to automatic weapons, which, considering the number of shells recovered from the murder scene, seemed to have been used in the homicides. They also knew that Smith lived with his grandmother, and they had her address. All of this led investigators to believe, first, that Caden Smith was a viable suspect in the murders, and, second, that they could very likely find evidence related to those homicides inside the residence he shared with his grandmother. The court agreed and issued a search warrant. And that search was successful. Police recovered the gun they said killed James, Thomas, and Mubarak. Law enforcement soon arrested Smith, and he was charged with three counts of murder, three counts of felony murder, three counts of robbery resulting in serious bodily injury, dangerous possession of a machine gun, dangerous possession of a firearm, possession of methamphetamine, possession of marijuana, and resisting law enforcement. Smith was arrested on December 3, 2021. Within a couple of weeks, two lawyers were appointed to represent him in court, Elizabeth Cleese and David Hennessy. And then, in May 2022, another defense attorney entered the case on Smith's behalf. This third attorney, of course, was Andrew Baldwin. Baldwin, as you know, now also represents Richard Allen, 
the man charged in the Delphi case. The case against Smith, as you've heard, was fairly strong. And at first blush, that would seem to pose a problem for the defense attorneys. But a large part of that case rested on the fact that police recovered the murder weapon from the house Smith lived in with his grandmother. So that gave the defense a pretty obvious strategy. Get that gun evidence thrown out. They made their move on August 29, 2022, filing a motion asking the court to declare that the warrant that gave investigators permission to search the house was flawed. Let's read a bit from that defense motion so you can hear exactly what they said was wrong with the warrant. The affidavit submitted in support of the search does not comply with statutory requirements. The search warrant affidavit failed to establish that Caden Smith was in the residence to be searched at the time of the search. The search warrant affidavit failed to establish that the items to be seized were in the residence to be searched at the time of the search. The search warrant affidavit failed to connect the items to be seized to Caden Smith. The search warrant affidavit failed to establish the credibility and reliability of the hearsay declarants, nor did the totality of the circumstances corroborate the hearsay. Now, to be clear, the hearsay declarants they are referring to are the friends and family of the victims who told police that James and Thomas had plans to meet with Caden Smith just before the murders. The defense attorneys are basically saying that nothing in the warrant gave the reader any reason to find those stories inherently credible. Now here is their conclusion. The search pursuant to the warrant was unreasonable under the Indiana Constitution. If the court agreed with this conclusion, of course, it would mean that they were saying the search should never have happened. That would mean that the state could not enjoy any benefit from it. In short, prosecutors would not be able to bring up in trial the fact that they found the murder weapon at Smith's residence. This would be a huge blow to their case. The person who would hear this motion was Jennifer Harrison, the judge of Court 20 in Indiana's Marion County Superior Court. Judges are like anyone else. The way they see the world and how they make their decisions is often strongly influenced by their own experiences. With that in mind, let's take a quick look at Judge Harrison's background. She previously earned criticism from some quarters for a decision she made in the case of Curtis Walker. That man threatened his fiancée with a steak knife. When police arrived at the scene, he lunged at them, trying to stab them. They shot him multiple times. Walker lived and faced multiple criminal charges. His bond was set at $80,000. Judge Harrison subsequently reduced that bond to $2,000. According to an article by Vic Reichert from WRTV, that decision drew heavy attack from the Indianapolis chapter of the Fraternal Order of Police. Rick Snyder, the president of that organization, said that Harrison's move put another suspected violent offender back on the streets of Indy's neighborhoods as the revolving door of criminal justice continues to spin in Marion County. However, The woman Walker had menaced gave reporter Reichert another perspective. She said Walker was a good man who had a mental health breakdown. She said he recognized the severity of what had happened, even though he did not remember the incident. The woman further added that Walker needed to be released because he was not getting the health care he needed in jail. 
and had in fact come close to dying while incarcerated. She stressed that the police did not need to worry that he might injure others, that his health was in fact so poor he could barely stand on his own. We should add that after being released, Walker did not commit any other violent offenses. He later took a plea deal and is awaiting sentencing. While we understand why the Fraternal Order of Police was upset by this incident, we think at the very least the situation was possibly more complex and nuanced than Judge Harrison's critics initially made it seem. Before becoming a judge, Harrison spent nearly nine years working at the Marion County Public Defender Agency. There she worked to help defend people charged with major felonies and drug crimes. She took this work quite seriously. In an application Harrison filed with the Indiana Judicial Nominating Commission, she wrote, One of the greatest honors of my life was to serve as a public defender. The right to have zealous and effective representation, no matter one's financial status, is one of our most important state and federal constitutional rights. I believe in equal access to justice for all, and my work as a public defender embodied that. This position also allowed me to deeply involve myself in my community, to see the struggles and challenges confronting our residents daily, and to connect my neighbors with resources to provide them better lives and opportunities. As a public defender, I represented Freddie Bailey, a man charged with the brutal murder of a three-year-old girl. The state filed the life without parole sentence enhancement against him. I worked very hard investigating Mr. Bailey's life up to the point he committed the murder. I spent time interviewing his family members, reviewing school records, working with an expert on his cognitive function, and spending a lot of time with Mr. Bailey himself. It was a very difficult and emotional case for all involved. I met with the prosecutors to propose a solution short of trial that would take the life without parole enhancement off the table. The state's recognition of his humanity and its offer to plead to a term of years opposed to life without parole represents one of my greatest professional accomplishments. It seems fair to note, then, that at the very least, Judge Harrison holds the rights of defendants in high regard. If she believed that the state violated Caden Smith's rights in allowing the search, she would not hesitate to rule the fruits of that search inadmissible. Mysteries are at the heart of everything we do here on The Murder Sheet. But sometimes it's more fun to dive into a fictional caper. That's why we love the free-to-download hidden object game June's Journey. This game is our daily escape from waiting around in line, getting stuck on hold, and just general doldrums. It is great to be able to just knock out a few levels here and there. You'll get to discover your inner sleuth and sharpen your observational skills by finding clues hidden in each level. Plus, it's like dropping straight into your own cozy mystery novel. You play as June Parker, an amateur detective with a nose for trouble. You get to tackle all kinds of bizarre crimes across a series of elegant and memorable locales. Also, you have a side hustle decorating your own island estate. I love that. I bought a swan pond. She really did. Download this game for a built-in work break. It's a great mental health boost that makes you feel accomplished before you get back to tackling whatever task you have at hand. And remember, when you support our advertisers, you're supporting our show. June needs your help, detective. 
Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. One of the reasons why cases in criminal courts seem to take a long time to work their way through the system is because at every step of the process, both sides get a chance to weigh in on what's happening. After Caden Smith's attorneys filed their motion to suppress the results of the search, they got an opportunity to file a more detailed argument. And the state, needless to say, got the chance to provide a response to that a chance to explain exactly why they believed the defense was wrong. Most of the back and forth between the two sides was what you might expect. The defense said they didn't think the stories their friends and family told were believable, and the prosecution thought they were. The prosecution ended their filing by making the argument that even if the warrant was found to have been issued in error, that did not mean the evidence needed to be thrown out. If a search warrant affidavit is later found to have failed to establish probable cause, evidence obtained during the warrant's execution is not automatically suppressed. The exclusionary rule does not require the suppression of evidence obtained in reliance on a defective search warrant if the police relied on the warrant in objective good faith. The good faith rule applies as long as the warrant is free from obvious defects other than non-deliberate errors made in its preparation and that was reasonably believed and that was reasonably believed by the law enforcement officer to be valid. Judge Harrison did not agree with that argument. She wrote, "The court finds the search warrant affidavit was issued without probable cause. The warrant is defective." and the item seized as a result of the warrant must be suppressed, pursuant to the Fourth Amendment and Fourteenth Amendments of the United States Constitution, and Article One, Section 11 of the Indiana Constitution. The court further finds the affidavit is facially lacking in indicia of probable cause that the good-faith exception does not apply. As you can imagine, this was not a popular decision. The prosecution filed a motion asking the judge to change her mind. She did not. They also asked her to delay any future proceedings in the case in order to give the Court of Appeals a chance to review her decision. That she agreed to. In the meantime, she allowed Caden Smith to be given a supervised release from jail. Russ McQuaid, a veteran reporter for Fox 59, who's also done a lot of great work on the Delphi case, spoke to some of the victim's family members in order to get their opinions on all of this. Here's a quote he got from Michael James Sr., the father of victim Michael James. It is perplexing when you think there is some type of closure in the evidence. There was enough evidence for a judge to sign off on a warrant. Then, when that warrant is executed, 
You find the murder weapon, another gun, drugs. There's just so much evidence. It's even bewildering to think how someone would have a heart to do that, to know that this overwhelming evidence was present to suppress it. James's mother, Gladys Larson, is actually a former member of the Chicago Police Department. Here's what she told McQuaid. It looks like IMPD, they did their job, and they did it actually in a timely manner. We're here today as we're confused as to why the evidence is being suppressed. I don't see any officer running into anyone's home and taking evidence out of the home without a search warrant. I don't see a judge signing off on a search warrant if it was not probable cause to go into the home. There are a couple of things worth noting. Many of you likely share the frustration and anger the family felt when the evidence was thrown out. From their perspective, it must seem as if the judge was actively working to help ensure that the man who took the lives of their loved ones would get away with that crime. And people who never even met Michael James, Joseph Thomas, or Abdullah Mubarak might simply feel the justice system protects the guilty at the expense of the innocent. Frankly, similar thoughts ran through our minds when we first heard a basic summary of this case. But we need to remember that this was not the irrational action of a rogue jurist who puts the rights of criminals over victims. Judge Harrison appears to be a well-qualified and thoughtful person. The fact that she used to be a public defender does not mean that she is biased against the prosecution. In her application to the Indiana Judicial Nominating Commission, Judge Harrison was asked to provide five samples of her legal writing. It seems safe to assume that the samples she chose would be samples she was proud of. Two of the five samples were orders denying the motions of defense attorneys to suppress evidence. Another of the samples was an order where she partially granted and partially denied a defense motion to suppress. Judge Harrison is not a rubber stamp for the defense. Of course, that does not mean she is necessarily correct. That is why her decision will be reviewed, and reviewed immediately. The trial proceedings in this case will be delayed until the Court of Appeals gets an opportunity to rule on whether or not Judge Harrison's ruling was correct. If they decide she was wrong, then the evidence will come back in and the trial will proceed. But if they decide she was correct... Well, think of it this way. If the evidence is truly inadmissible, isn't it better that we learn that now, before a trial? Think how horrible it would have been for the families to go through an entire trial, to take the stand in front of Caden Smith and have to discuss the tragic loss of their loved ones, to have the satisfaction of having Caden Smith being found guilty, and only then to learn that the whole thing was for nothing. And they would then have to go through the whole thing all over again in a new trial. To get a better sense ourselves, we reviewed the PCA. We wanted to see whether or not we felt Judge Harrison's concerns were justified. Keep in mind, the following analysis is just our opinion. To us, it seemed like the PCA for the search warrant was a good start. We'd have liked to see more. We previously discussed search warrants in other cases, such as the one filed against Ron Logan in the Delphi murders back in March 2017. We noted how in these warrants it's important for authorities to say that they were looking for particular pieces of evidence that they felt would be found in a particular place. This PCA did not go into that level of detail. To be very clear, we are not accusing IMPD of doing a bad job here. 
we can just see that there was a gray area. One more thing. Many people were especially unhappy with the fact that Caden Smith was released after the evidence was thrown out. The idea of having a person plausibly accused of murder back out on the streets understandably makes residents a bit nervous. Well, rest assured, he was not free for long. Judge Harrison set some rather basic and straightforward rules for Smith to follow during his release. Basically, among other things, he was not allowed to possess any firearms, deadly weapons, or ammunition. Sounds simple, doesn't it? Well, as it turns out, Caden Smith had an active presence on Snapchat, under the name Bandhunta Red. Using that account, Smith posted numerous pictures showing himself with weapons. He also posted information indicating that he had some marijuana for sale. He also sent messages indicating he was interested in trading or selling a Smith & Wesson handgun. All of this served as an apparently inadvertent but highly public admission that he was violating the terms of his release. David Hennessy, one of Smith's attorneys, predictably did not see it quite that way. From his point of view, the rules said that Smith could not possess guns. This meant, he said, that they have to prove he possessed it. Not that he was just in some house where there happened to be guns that were not out in the open. Judge Harrison did not find that argument compelling. She ordered that Smith would remain in jail without bond. And meanwhile, of course, he would also face three new charges in connection with the new incident. One count of dealing marijuana, one count of invasion of privacy, and one count of visiting a common nuisance, maintaining a controlled substance. What does all of this mean for the Delphi case? Well, as we mentioned earlier, the co-counsel for Caden Smith, Andrew J. Baldwin, represents half of Richard Allen's defense team. He is an accomplished criminal defense attorney who's been certified as a criminal trial specialist from the National Board of Trial Advocacy since 2008. He's a founding partner in an Indiana firm known as the Criminal Defense Team. Let's make a rather obvious point. The Caden Smith and Richard Allen cases seem to have at least one thing in common. Based on what we know now, in both cases, the most compelling evidence against the accused men appears to be gun-related evidence that was recovered after a search of the accused man's residence. In the Smith case, the defense, as you've heard, fought to get that evidence suppressed. We would not be surprised if the defense in the Delphi case also made moves to fight the validity of the warrant that allowed authorities to search the Allen home. We would love to give you a detailed and informed analysis of the Delphi warrant so we could understand its strengths or weaknesses. But, like so much in this case, that warrant has been held back from public scrutiny. We do not fully understand why there has been so much secrecy in this case or what authorities hoped it would accomplish. Needless to say, if there are any weaknesses in the search warrant for Richard Allen's house, it seems clear that the defense will do all it can to exploit them. We have not seen or read the affidavit for the search warrant for Allen's residence. But if it is similar to the Smith affidavit, if, in other words, it relies on hearsay evidence to make a case that Allen should be considered a suspect, and that that alone means his house should be searched, then the prosecution should be aware that they might face a repeat of what happened in the Smith case. They might lose what appears to be their biggest piece of evidence, 
actually tying Richard Allen to the murders of Liberty German and Abigail Williams. Thanks so much for listening to The Murder Sheet. If you have a tip concerning one of the cases we cover, please email us at murdersheet at gmail.com. If you have actionable information about an unsolved crime, please report it to the appropriate authorities. If you're interested in joining our Patreon, that's available at www.patreon.com slash murdersheet. If you want to tip us a bit of money for records requests, you can do so at www.buymeacoffee.com slash murdersheet. We very much appreciate any support. Special thanks to Kevin Tyler Greenley, who composed the music for the murder sheet, and who you can find on the web at kevintg.com. If you're looking to talk with other listeners about a case we've covered, you can join the Murder Sheet discussion group on Facebook. We mostly focus our time on research and reporting, so we're not on social media much. We do try to check our email account, but we ask for patience as we often receive a lot of messages. Thanks again for listening. Swimsuit? Check. Sunscreen? Check. Phone charger? Check. Don't forget to pack the 5-Hour Energy. It fits great in a pocket or carry-on, and the alert feeling will help you arrive ready for anything. Now get 20% off when you use code 5HETRAVEL at 5HourEnergy.com. Expires April 30th. One-time use only. Not valid with other discounts. Remember, visit 5HourEnergy.com and use code 5HETRAVEL to save 20%.